0: And welcome back to the Asset Allocators podcast, where we try and take a look under the bonnet of the market with leading asset allocators. I'm Joseph Wilkins, writer on Asset Allocator, and joining me today are David Coombs, Head of Multi-Asset Investments at Rathbones Asset Management, and David Thorpe, Contributing Editor at Asset Allocator. Good morning, both, and thank you for joining me. Good morning. So, David, much of the market this year has been driven by strong performances, for anything AI themed, and more recently anti-obesity drugs, but are those interesting investment ideas to you?
1: Well, I think in both cases, frankly, the hype has got slightly ahead of the reality, and and the hopes got ahead of um, kind of what we're actually seeing on the ground. Um, it's been, I mean, it's an overused phrase, roller coaster, but it, I mean, it really has in terms of market leadership. So, yeah, in the first half of the year. Um, AI drove a lot of the software technology names higher and higher. Um, fortunately, you know in our funds we held five of the magnificent seven, which is a dreadful name and to, to give to any stock basket. But anyway, um, and it was great because we were on the side of that that hype story. We we, we we took profits because we felt the hype was overstated, and perhaps we'll come back to the reasons why in a second. In the second half of the year. Um, when we had the anti-obesity drugs, you know, driven by Novo, Nordisk Disc and, and, and Eli Lilly and the share prices went to the moon, we didn't own those. So that was painful. But even worse than that, all of a sudden, everyone decided that no one ever, was ever going to eat a Big Mac again or eat a pizza. And no one's going to need a hip replacement because everyone was going to lose so much weight. We'd all be thin as poles. And so a lot of the health technology stocks got hit and the anti-obesity stocks got hit really hard, which we own because we think long-term medical technology is going to solve one of the world's biggest problems. So we went from being a great place in the first half of the year to being in a really awful place then for a few weeks as as we saw this huge dispersion between Eli and Novo and all the other healthcare stocks in the world. And we're just sitting there, kind of like this is ridiculous. I mean, I think um, Eli went fifty times earnings versus Glaxo at ten times. I mean, roughly speaking, don't you know? Um, which just goes to show how quickly these narratives t- take hold. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been quite a ride. But in both cases, to be honest, you know, I think you need to just take a step back and look under the bonnet.
2: David, I'm curious about that that reference to. Um people have interpreted it as nobody will eat a Big Mac again because I thought it was more like a license to eat more Big Macs, right? You know, you, you eat the Big Mac at lunchtime, you take the anti-obesity drug in the evening and it all balances Yeah, I'm not
1: out. sure it works that way, I think. Uh,
2: well, I mean, to be honest, I'm wondering about the value of this technology now. If it doesn't, if it doesn't allow me to be more unhealthy, I, I don't understand. But I guess, look, the question that everyone asks when there's an innovation, yeah. whether it's AI, whether it's anti-obesity drugs is, um, we all love an innovation. We can all see how they may benefit humanity and society, but we don't necessarily know which companies will be the winners. The, you know, the the stereotypical example is uh, Facebook wasn't the first social media thing. There was one or two before that, although Joe won't remember those ones. <laughs> um, but do we know in the case of anti-obesity drugs, in the case of yep. AI, that, that the companies that have been benefiting will be among the winners? Yeah, who remembers Friends Reunited, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um well, I do, clearly. Um, oh, I do remember uh, it, yes, unfortunately.
1: Let's take AI to start with, because obviously the, the two are clearly very different. Let's take them, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. in, in sure. order. So AI, I, I think AI is fundamentally going to revolutionize our society, actually. I mean, that's not a huge thing to say, but let me just explain what I mean by that. I, I, if you think the internet, the, int- the invention of the internet was a, a kind of an industrial revolution, or, or robotics, for example, before that, I mean... In fact, particularly if we just talk about robotics, for example, robotics and um, automation revolutionized manufacturing. And, and we lost many, many jobs in manufacturing industries, particularly in the UK, um, where machines were cheaper than labor. Obviously, less so in, in, in countries in Asia, in developing countries. But certainly in, in Europe and North America, we, we saw a huge shift. I think AI is the same, but for, for white collar, for professional um office-based jobs basically. I think we're going to see AI replace huge swathes of, of mid-level and lower level professional services staff. So we're we're going to feel in, in whether it's legal, investment, dare I say journalism, all, all of these these industries are going to see jobs go, I think, uh replaced by automation. And AI is going to drive that. And how we as a society deal with that will be huge. But it's not going to happen by the middle of next month, which is kind of where we were at the beginning of the year. And I think, you know, and I've, don't get me wrong, gratefully received those share prices went up. We, we had a really good six months, but we weren't fooled by that. I think if we go back to the internet, the the companies that have made the most money of the internet have not necessarily been those that have developed the internet, right? If we think about the big winners, Google, Amazon, you know, they didn't invent the internet. And I suspect with AI it'll be the same it'll be those companies that are enabled by by ai that will drive through huge productivity and efficiency gains and they're where you're going to want to invest and actually i think it's going to be pretty mainstream so i think trying to develop an ai strategy or an ai fund or an ai thematic frankly i think you're wasting your time because ai will be endemic across every business i mean we invested even in Rentacil, which uses AI. I mean, every that's co- pest control, right? Pest control, right? So every company that you will touch, every large company, will embrace AI, AI of next five years. So it is exciting. It's going to drive increases in profit margins, but there's also a macro element that we that's very hard to model, as in what will be the impact on unemployment? What, how will these people retrain? How will it affect our education services going forwards? Will we need to push? Um, graduates into different industries. You know, if you're advising your son, daughter, niece, nephew today, who's doing their GCSEs, you know, would you say law or finance? Given where I is coming from, I don't know. I mean, the second point. Sorry, you, you mentioned the, the the obesity drugs. The obesity drugs. So, this is even more tricky because yes again the market gets very excited by the leaders in the
2: two names i mentioned i mean the difference those two companies are very established businesses that have other product lines have been around forever they do which is unusual for for an innovation arguably to come from those yeah normally you'd expect some kind of sort of (coughs) small cap
1: aim or us equivalent wouldn't you or 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 elsewhere i guess (laughs) um so that is quite unusual but the other point is that there are other big pharmaceutical and biotech companies, large-cap companies, who got deep pockets who are also developing Mm -hmm. anti-weight loss drugs. That's number one. So there could be more competitive products coming onto the market. So you need to think about that before chasing those two stocks ever higher. Initial test results on some of their competitors are the efficacy is even stronger. Mm -hmm. Um, And I suspect the company that develops it in pill form rather than injection form will be a leader as well. So there's going to be challenges just from competition. So if you think about disruptors, normally the disruptors that make a lot of money are those that have that unique technology or knowledge for a little while and and drives the market forward or has that market leadership I don't know how long these companies will have that market leadership for. That's number one. Secondly, um, we've done a huge amount of reading. Um, it's been quite a summer. Reading around this and looking at the tests and who was in the tests and whether people, to your point, David, you know, did they give up Big Macs completely? Did they have the drugs and eat Big Macs? You know, <laughs> did people, when they come off the drugs, start eating Big Macs again? Did they put the weight back on? What were the side effects? What you know? What were the control groups in the testing? And we have to say, you know, there's still a lot of questions and answers. A lot of people had side effects. Nausea, for example. Some people didn't really want to change their life.
2: to never... the Nausea may have come from eating too many Big Macs.
1: Well, it could have been, but I think what we can see from the test is they didn't eat big, they did oh, right. change their lifestyle. Um, but took the joy out of food. And do people want the joy out of food? Or is it part of their, their, their lived experience? Or is being thin so important they're happy to give up the joy of food? So there's, there are huge questions again here, and yet the market said, no. Forget the questions. These are worth 50 times, 60 times earnings. We're going to the moon and back, and everyone's going to be taking these drugs. And the other point is these affect the way your brain operates, right? They suppress your your your, your appetite. Um, and so there's, there are some theories that these drugs will also be used to help people stop um, gambling. And now if these are behavioral-type drugs, we're in a whole different world um, and, you know, I'm no scientist or chemist, or you know, but um, this kind of claim starts to make me quite nervous. Um, you know, are they going to be rolled out uh, in, in the same way of antidepressive drugs? And what are the long-term impacts psychologically of these drugs? Do we know yet? So I think, look, I think if we can find a way of reducing obesity and diabetes, that's, of course, got to be a good thing. And, you know, we'd, we would want to invest in that. But right now... Um, it feels like the risks are far too high to chase.
2: Thank you.
0: That's very interesting. And um, changing the subject away from obesity and into government bonds, um, how do you view government bond exposure right now?
1: Um, that is quite quite a quick, sharp change. Right? Yes.
2: Um, <laughs> <at> the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, we've gone from... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, from uh, pharmaceutical to to governments. Uh, Of course, governments being um, big buyers of pharmaceutical products, so we are literally looking at the customer in some respects here because who will benefit from... um, See what I did there? (laughs) Who will benefit from... uh, a If obesity is is beaten, which, as I say, I'm a bit of a sceptic on that, but let's just say it is, then in theory that reduces costs and it reduces demand on health services. So... Um, at the moment, governments would be welcoming those. But anyway, getting back to your question. Um, yeah, so, you know, government bond yields have risen dramatically through the year. In fact, I would say this is the biggest bear market in bonds in my career. And bearing in mind, I started in 1984. Um, I know it doesn't look possible, but uh, I am that old. Um that's forty years. Um, if you say it quickly, it's the big even. It's a bigger bear market in my view. Even the nineteen ninety four, which some of the listeners probably don't remember, but um, when the U.S. Federal Reserve surprised the market by raising rates dramatic uh, um, when it wasn't expected, and we and we had a very very a very rapid rise in bond yields in ninety four. This feels far worse and longer, and that's because the you know, the rate of U.S. Federal Reserve interest rates has been much faster and higher. Than ever before, so the bond markets have had to try and deal with that. Um, What's been interesting, though, um, is that if if you look at U.S. bond yields, for example, we we are now in 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 yields that are uh, have a positive real yield, you know, over inflation. Um, We don't have that yet in the U.K., although we're getting we're getting quite close. Um, Certainly compared to where we were at the start of the year. So if you've got positive real yields in the US, getting close to real yields, and maybe if you expect inflation to fall over the next couple of years, then if you're buying longer-dated government bonds today, then you're expecting positive real yields. Well, we're in a very different position to where we've been for some time. And you're getting a high nominal yield as well, which is why a lot of people are buying short-dated gilts at the moment in their personal accounts. Um, So... When when the when the return of an asset class starts to to rise dramatically, both in absolute and real terms, it would be crazy to to not look at that. And we went from zero exposure really at the start of the year to um, you know to a. a, a eight-year duration uh, exposure now, which is the highest I've had in 15 years.
2: So, eight years is slightly longer than benchmark, right? So, just uh, about just about overweight. It depends
1: on your benchmark. I mean, okay. the, the GILT index is around about eight and a half years. Okay. Yeah. Um, a lot of people use the five to 15-year index, so we'd be slightly higher. But, yeah, I mean... Broadly speaking, we're there or there about index kind of exposure for yeah. gilts, which, is as I say, it, I've not been there in 15 years. Um, so it's quite a dramatic change. And we've been buying right the way through from 4 to 5% yields, um, both in the US and UK. Um, and that was painful for a while because yields kept going. I think there's anecdotally a lot of the momentum traders out there was, were carrying on selling bonds. And again, you know, we talked about hype in... In uh, and kind of um, these kind of swollen narratives, one of a better phrase in AI and um, and weight uh, weight reduction, it felt the same to me in bond markets towards the end of October, where the narrative changed again. So if we went from this, oh well, inflation is going to fall, therefore, and bond markets um, are forecasting a recession, to all of a sudden, oh, the bond markets are really worried about the level of government debt, and therefore they want a higher yield to reflect that higher credit risk. And everyone started talking about this term, term premium, which no one had spoken about, well, I can't remember, decades. And it's classic post-rationalization of a move, right? What actually just meant what really happened, I think, is that the short sellers just kept selling short. Or, right. And then we had a massive kind of counter-reaction at the beginning of this month when we had an inflection point and then those momentum traders stopped and then they were all having to cover their short positions and yields fell quite quickly so i think there's a lot of technical trading going on but people are rushing around to try and come up with a narrative that explains why bond yields have been so volatile um so what we try to do in the same way as you know ai and and, um weight reduction is just again take a step back try and you know, take the emotion out of what's going on in the market, try and ignore the noise and just think about the logic here. You know, if if you can buy a 30-year gilt on a 5% yield and you believe, and this is this is a bit of a leap, but the Bank of England might get ha- hold of inflation at some stage and get close to their target of two, then you could be looking at, a you know, a real return of 3% of the next 30 years uh, annualized, which would be an historic high return for guilds. Now, there's quite a few leaps there you gotta make that one the Bank of England's competent <laughs> okay. Secondly that inflation will drop to two. AI might drive inflation down to two by the way, like the internet did in globalization, mm-hmm. who knows. But even if I if, if they don't, even if they fail and they and we average at three, you're still going to make a positive real return of two percent on those guilds. So I think you know the risk the risk-reward basis on longer-dated government bonds is, is quite attractive. It's not as attractive as it was a couple of weeks ago when we were, we bought the last tranche. But it's quite interesting because I've got a lot of questions They're saying, you know, well, why would you invest because interest rates are so high? Yeah. Why would you bother? Well, my cash weighting is the lowest it's been in 15 years, and that's because I'm finding lots of assets now that, that are priced off cash where values have dropped in the last 12 months, asset classes that I haven't really bought for a long, long time, like government bonds, infrastructure, where well, I think I'm locking in some really strong real returns in the next 5, 10 years. So why wouldn't I take my cash right down? So I've been in this kind of counterintuitive position where three years ago I had about, in my medium risk fund, I had about 15%, 20% cash, and now it's 2 so when I was earning zero on the cash, I had 20%. Now I'm earning 5% on my cash, I've got near zero. And that, some people struggle with that. But actually, if you think about it, if you've got nothing to buy, hold cash. If you've got lots to buy, don't hold cash. Investing can be quite simple, really.
0: Sure. Um, a feature of your Rathbones portfolios you run uh, is that they invest directly. Um, so could you talk us through the benefits of this?
1: Yeah, so you know, we 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 were running the, the strategies initially um, as multi-manager back in sort of when we launched in tw- in 2009 now, um, because that was kind of what people wanted, um, and so give people what they want, I suppose. I, if I'm being honest, it wasn't the way I, I would choose to run money, but um, that was yeah. This industry sometimes gets again very caught up in in the flavour of the moment, and, and multi asset multi-manager was the flavour of the moment. But when it got to 2014, I started to get kind of, one, I wasn't particularly enjoying it because it's very hard to express your your core conviction when you're allocating to and outsourcing to other managers. And often they'd be taking a you know, diametrically opposed view to, to mine, which I found incredibly frustrating. And also, I felt that we were over-diversifying, if I'm being honest. And I felt like I was running a really expensive tracker. And I went to my boss and said, "Look, I, I just don't want to run money like this anymore." Um, well, I think the funds were around three hundred million at the time, and I said, "I want to go back to investing directly, which I'd done for most of my career up to that up to the, the point where I launched these funds." So um, we did that a year later, and um, it allowed me to express my my views very precisely with every investment in the portfolio. So whether it's an equity, a bond, commodity, you know any mistakes are mine. I can't blame anybody else, you know, and, um, the portfolio always reflects my view of the world. So that's number one. Number two, it allowed me to be much more precise around risk as well, which is really important because again, often, you know, when I, the equity side of the book, um, we pick. Companies that reflect our kind of absolute return focus. So the balance sheets are very strong. They tend to have very low levels of debt. They have high returns on capital employed. We don't diversify the equity portfolio to be defensive because we can do that through fixed income or other assets. The equity portfolio is there really to grow and to drive the returns of the fund. So typically our equity portfolio will have a growthier bias. Um, But as I say, in absolute absolute risk terms, it won't have kind of ropey balance sheets, right? It's it's higher quality, I suppose, to to sum it up. Whereas if you you allocate to equity managers, they're trying to be a benchmark every three months and they will position their portfolio in line with what they think is going to perform the next three months. And we'll go into into companies that I don't think are appropriate for the strategy that I'm running. So we have found that it's helped (coughs) us to reduce the risk significantly by investing directly. Um, similarly with fixed income, a bond manager is trying to beat a bond index. We use fixed income in a much more defensive way, lower beta way, if you like. So our bonds will, the, our corporate bonds that not we've held much for, for quite a long time. But where we do, we would hold them to maturity quite often, not look to trade for a five basis point pickup here or there because we're driving capital growth from the equity. So our bonds do a different job. So we'll take, again, take quite different views from our bond manager, our bond team at Rathbones, for example, and same with the equities. Often we're buying and selling opposite our equity managers because we buy investments that are appropriate for multi-asset. Also, you're taking out a second layer of costs, you know, which I don't know, depending on your strategy, could be between 50 and 120 basis points per annum, which, you know, you compound that saving each year. That's, that's material, and that has an impact on your returns for your clients, but also in terms versus your peers, right? So you have a, almost like a, a tailwind, if you like, because you're not paying those extra costs. And unfortunately, many multi-manager funds have struggled to include my own when I was running them to, to, to I, I felt, to totally justify all those costs. Um, so there's a number of reasons to do it. Um, it's harder work. You need more people in the team. So we had to, we had to grow the team a little bit. Um, but it was the best thing we did, and we've grown it from three hundred to five and a half billion since it went direct. So, it seems to have landed pretty well with with investors.
2: And do you <clears throat> um, have access to the the research and analyst capabilities of, for example, the equity managers within Rathbones Asset Management? For example, Rathbones Asset Management has a very large global equity yeah. strategy run by James yes. Thompson. Yeah. So. Do, do you have sight of his work and you can utilise that if you want to, or how does that work? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I sit
1: next to him most of the time in the office, so... And he's how just, unfortunate for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, those Bermuda twang, you know, cause, you know, it comes out of irritating, as my, my Welsh lilt can from time to time. It's, um, <laughs> we're very different types of managers. Um So, you know, we, we chat and, and his team and my team chat regularly, obviously. Um But again, like, as I just said, there are some equities that he will buy that I might really like but they're not really appropriate for multi-asset and he and he would probably say some of the equities we hold that they're kind of you know he might think they're very sensible businesses but they're not really going to meet the kind of growth targets that he has and his, his investors so we do we, we often attend company meetings together and we and um, we work mostly with um sell side analysts in in the main um and so we share that resource and we've got a meeting together at the lunchtime today actually so we share the knowledge we don't necessarily copy each other in terms of the investment um so you would see a you have know, two quite different equity portfolios actually, and that's okay because that's, that's what's appropriate for each of the different mandates. Thank you:
0: Sure. And uh, just one final thing, David. Um, looking forward, uh, what do you think will be the major themes across equity markets in 2024?
1: <laughs> um Well, I, if you, I wish I knew, because um, it would make this job. I mean, one thing about doing this job a long time is that you don't make predictions, and secondly, you don't think you're smart in the market because the market can make you look stupid really quickly. Um, so, I'll answer the question that's in the sense of what do I think are most likely to generate the strongest equity returns in the portfolio from a. I don't think of it in thematic terms I think of it in more sectors uh, and if we we talked about one of them actually I still think despite you know the, the hype this year and the excitement around weight reduction drugs I still think one of the one of the biggest tailwinds and one of the biggest problems that the world has to solve is obesity and and the ageing demographics, and it's a boring story. Has been there since I started investing, but it's getting more. It's getting more of an issue. Even China now, we're seeing because of the one-child policy, we're seeing the demographics, ageing population is is accelerating across Japan and, and most of the developed world. So you know, we do think that medical technology that, that drives efficiencies in procedures, so that um, healthcare centres, hospitals can see more patients per day, that um, surgeons can can operate on more patients per hour um, using robotics, using even remote surgeries, if if, if, potentially in the future, using all sorts of virtual technology. We think that's hugely exciting. And and, and you're pushing, you're not pushing against anything, right? Because governments or even private healthcare systems have all got long tails of waiting lists, right, since COVID. And that's not going to go. And you can throw another billion pounds at it or a billion dollars. It's not going to touch the side. So, forget what the politicians say. The way we solve this is through technology and through prevention, actually. So, we're investing in, t- in testing companies like Eurofins, we're investing in diabetes monitoring um, companies like Dexcom and Abbott Labs, um, companies that deal with, you know, um, heart. Um, Uh, the heart surgery for example using less invasive procedures so clearly for less invasive recovery times are quicker people leave the hospitals quicker and it sounds awful but it's about creating efficiency Uh, i know this is people's lives and health but actually people's lives and health will benefit from greater efficiency because they'll be seen more quickly they'll be tested more often they'll be prevented from getting those diseases rather than treating them afterwards i think that's a huge now that's not just a 12 month 2024 story I think that's a you know that's a decade long story, but those stocks haven't had a really a very good year this year because of what we talked about earlier. So I think that's a sector that we've been adding to throughout this period as, as they've come down. Because as I said, no one's ever needed an operation ever again according to the markets this year. So we think that's a really exciting sector. Um, I think you know uh, unfortunately it's a bit dull, but um, software is still going to be. You know, and the drive for greater and greater power, computer power, is AI is going to be a very hungry animal, right? And so those companies making the smallest chips and the and the uh, companies driving the software around AI are are still going to be very strong. So the the magnificent seven are not going anywhere now. Whether it's the seven or whether it's a it's a, I think it'll be a much more hopefully a bit more thoughtful. Leadership on, on software and even hardware for that matter over the next 12 months. What's interesting is um, that actually a lot of those software companies a lot of the share prices have gone up a lot this year they've actually derated they're actually cheaper than they were at the beginning of the year. Because earnings have reduced re- price. Yeah. Exactly right. So I mean <laughs> they still feel a bit nosebleed territory like but, but I, I, unfortunately I think they will continue to drive um, because I think growth will be scarce so that's not very exciting but I think Med, medical technology—you're not buying a sector that's been, you know, at the forefront of everyone's thoughts. Software, you are, but I'm afraid it's very hard to bet against those. Um, but I, I don't think it necessarily is the same seven. But it, it certainly will be. And we're doing a lot of work in that area at the moment, looking at other names and trying to identify, you know, who, who will be the leaders. And you know, we'll get some right, we'll get some wrong, I guess. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably the two areas. And I guess the other sector that's been really unloved, and again is going nowhere, and it's a long-term theme, is is um, looking at um, renewable energy and looking at more sustainable um, building materials. You know, um, I do think. I mean, it's, it's all got lumped into this ESG ridiculous kind of again story. But I think if we if we just pull back and look at what are the then say the, don't hit the headlines, of the COP 28s and all this sort of stuff, whether the hype gets a bit too much. But look at those companies involved in converting commercial buildings to becoming more sustainable, or those involved in you know, building residential homes that are more sustainable. Renewable energy is getting more and more interesting, um, becoming much more competitive with with traditional sources. So I, I still think that's an area. Mind your eye, there'll be you know in in most nascent industries there'll be polarization between those that do very well and those that go to the wall frankly it's, it's it's kind of hit or miss in some cases so you've got to be really careful but again it, it you know last two years you mentioned sustainable investing and people really don't want to know and you've seen outflows according to the mm-hmm. industry
2: reports have been huge indeed and a number of uh, <laughs> i think uh, it's getting to the point where esg is viewed as a contentious term and yeah, and 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 but 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 maybe it's it's a hype cycle thing because in 2020 and 2021, there was I, I wasn't getting pitched anything other than look at our shiny new ESG fund.
1: It, it, it was crazy, and, you know. We we launched our sustainable multi asset funds at that time, and I was having to take, say to people. <laughs> Um, don't buy this for performance. And my sales guy was saying, well, what are you saying? What are you saying? And I'm like, look, you know, these things, we're launching this into a, into a high valuation territory, which is a really awkward thing to be launching funds, yes, yes. I can assure you. But you don't want hype money coming into a new fund launch, or at least I don't as a fund manager. Maybe other people might. But I didn't want a lot of hype money coming in. Um, and so I kept saying, that if this aligns with your values and, and you want to invest in the long term, by all means, buy my." sustainable version if not by the core because you shouldn't be doing it just for performance terms mm-hmm. particularly at that time mm-hmm. i still don't think you should buy it for performance terms to be honest i still think sustainable esg investing which i don't not a term I, a particular i think sustainable is a better word um then i think you you do it to align with your values Nevertheless, in my core funds, where I'm free to go anywhere, I do think some of those areas now look quite interesting. A lot of the companies are mid and small cap, and as you as you probably aware, there's a massive valuation gap between small and large cap at the moment. Mm -hmm. In the States, I think it's almost as wide as it's ever been, and we've been adding to US small cap actually this week. So I you know, some of those companies are really, really unloved and they've dropped like 60, 70, 80 percent or more over the last couple of years. And some will probably
2: keep going, you know, because down 80%, you can still drop another 50, right? Um, I was just going to say, David, on that note, you mentioned that the fund range is five and a half billion. Yes. Uh, Is liquidity something that you have to think about when you're buying small cap equities in five and a half billion books? Yes.
1: Yes. So we only invest directly into large and mega cap stocks. So when we invest in, in small caps, we tend to use ETFs. Okay. Um, because it tends to be more of a tactical position anyway rather than the long term. And, and also it's a risk mitigation because when when you get that big valuation gap, sometimes it just makes sense to close that by taking an exposure for, say, one year or even less to, to small caps. So right now, that and that means it's a liquid investment. Yes, it's not as precise as buying two or three small cap stocks, but actually for us, that's a much more appropriate way uh, of investing.
2: Thank you. Cool.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, David, for coming on. And that's all we have time for today. Um, I'm Joseph Wilkins, a writer on Asset Allocator. And that was David Coombs, head of multi-asset investment at Rathbone's Asset Management, and David Thorpe, um, contributing editor to Asset Allocator. Thank you very much both for joining me. Thank you. And uh, yeah, have a good rest of your day. And uh, we will see you soon. Be sure to tune in next time.